Welcome to Paranormal, and we have a special guest on this episode. Uh, of course, we have Natalina with us, our mostly regular co-host. <laughs> but our special guest uh, is Jack Brewer. Uh, Jack is here with me at the Roswell UFO Festival, and I'm not going to telegraph too much about his work because we more or less want to discuss uh, his work. But in a nutshell, um, Jack has done really important research on the connections between uh, alien abduction narratives and, in some respects, UFO studies in general and government programs that involve, uh, again, what others have called mind control, again, memory manipulation, human experimentation, uh, you know, really, you know, human rights abuses and that sort of thing. And to sort of get us into the interview, what attracted me to Jack's work was I've just had this nagging question in my head that was sort of answered by your blog uh, when I found it a few years ago, that why is it that there are certain names that show up in UFO literature and the history of, of ufology that also show up in documented sources about these government mind control programs? To me, that just didn't seem like a coincidence. So it's really bugged me for a while. And, you know, I'd, I'd come across this or that uh, article or this or that source that, oh, there they are again. But Jack is the one who has more or less uh, tied this together. So I'm going to just jump into uh, asking him some questions. And when Natalina has a question, we will let her, you know, fire away at Jack. But can you give us a little bit of a, a history about yourself first to start off? And what drew you into the subject? And, and when was it really, when was the first time you really started to notice the connections and then started to drill down into this? Sure, thanks. Well, I think like most people, I was interested in the UFO topic for a variety of reasons. And I read all the, the popular authors of the 80s and 90s. I was fascinated with Streber and the old John Keel books and Jacques Vallée, and that led to Hopkins and uh, Jacobs. And I began attending the UFO conferences, and I had a lot of questions that didn't seem to be getting answered. And so I, would, I, I began contacting some of these people myself, the popular writers and speakers, and eventually began writing my blog, The UFO Trail, in 2010, because I felt like I was running into circumstances that other people like me that shared my interests needed to be aware of when they were seeing these polished books and these finished products by some, particularly some of the abduction investigators that when you came behind them and you checked their witnesses and you checked their sources, they, they didn't always seem to be adding up. And along the way, I began to read some of the popular, um, some of the guys we might say looked into the darker things, like, like Martin Cannon and even Jacques Vallée did. And Whatever the intent may be of relatively current day abduction investigators and say from the 1980s forward, 
there's no denying that there are similarities between Cold War behavior modification projects and the very investigative techniques that are being used by abduction investigators. I don't really need to even know their intent to be able to identify that and see that the cultures at the least became enmeshed and intertwined. And we see, um, like in these behavior modification projects, hypnosis was explored at length to indoctrinate people to, to certain political alliances, to alter their perceptions, to interrogate them. Yet we see those very techniques used as tools to solicit witness testimony. And when we think of mind control, we often think of some kind of instrument or weapon that targets somebody. But I think we could give a little more thought to how a person can come into the UFO community and just want to learn a little bit about something that they don't really have a good understanding and might become overwhelmed by a, a group or the people that advocate a, a strong alien presence and claim to have an awareness of what these beings are doing and there, it influences our thoughts and our thinking and our perceptions. And then you enter the hypnotist under the guise of investigation. And it doesn't take long before you have a person that can experience an entire crisis of who they are, what's been happening to them all their life, what, what took place. And again, whatever the reasons that we see those similarities and this manipulation, um, they're, they're there. Mm-hmm. And now, again, our, our listeners are going to be familiar with the fact, and of course the show name is Paranormal, that we focus on peer-reviewed research. And Jack, your book, uh, The Grays Have Been Framed, uh, it's about exploitation in the UFO community. That book really taps into a lot of peer-reviewed literature. Again, I, I know, you know, having gone through the book, that uh, you try to link, you know, people to things that are accessible. Uh, but, of course, there's a whole body of literature that, you know, lies just sort of dormant in the journals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want, I want people to know that, again, the nature of the conversation we're going to have, even though this is an interview, uh, it's still about real research. It's still about peer-reviewed material, professional uh, research programs that are not only well-documented from like a sort of a military historical, you know, project historical view, but people have actually invested a lot of time studying uh, those programs and, you know, what what was done in them. So, uh, you know, having, you know, your personal introduction and that introduction Let's just get into some of the basic elements, and then we can drill down into a couple of cases. And then, you know, finally, I want to make sure that that we include, um, you know, something of your, I hate to just say something of your opinion, but I mean, obviously, you've formed opinions and have certain suspicions. But can you tell us briefly about um, hypnosis? Let's just start there. Good, bad, or indifferent? Uh, Should we be positively predisposed about the use of hypnosis 
or negatively, or is it sort of a six of one and a half dozen of another? Well, I would have to defer to what the qualified experts tell us. And as you say, I, I do um, cite them. And the APA tells us that hypnosis is a therapeutic tool. And, and the APA is? The American Psychological Association. And that it should be used um, under the guidance of a qualified professional. And it, it's my understanding it's not recommended for use as a, um investigative tool. It, it's not to be used for a memory enhancer. And just by what the APA tells us that it, it can be used as a therapeutic treatment for relaxation and various things, it, it kind of goes without saying it shouldn't be used by people not trained in hypnosis to help traumatize people for whatever reason, explore the possibility they've been abused by extraterrestrials. So I, I, I don't have any problem with hypnosis and non-ordinary states of consciousness can certainly, it's my understanding, be used by professionals in therapeutic treatments. However, the, the, the topic of hypnosis as a memory enhancer would just across the board be it's not reliable, and that's the findings of um, Elizabeth Loftus, Julia Shaw, other experts, psychologists, memory experts. Um, Shaw, in fact, she she's done fascinating studies that, in my opinion, tied directly into the alien abduction genre in that she recently published a study, um, I believe in 2015, and in, in which participants in the study, she showed all they needed to um, create richly detailed false memories was uh, three hours in a friendly interview environment, the introduction of false details, incorrect information, and faulty memory enhancing techniques. And uh, it, it, it was so prevalent, in fact, that participants were confessing to crimes that had never even happened and explaining them in length and in detail. Now, this kind of thing would obviously have implications to professional interrogators, the intelligence community, and this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about that we need to, as a community, a UFO community, question why are these kind of techniques being used to by unqualified professionals in some cases to solicit testimonies about things that in all likelihood didn't happen the way they're being remembered and further traumatize the individuals and give them, you know, personality crises of who they are and what's happened to them and how could I have not remembered this and several disturbing circumstances. But the, the memory issue it's the opinion of professionals today and psychologists, the mental health paradigm. It's my understanding that across the board, no, it's not a reliable 
not a reliable memory retrieval technique and may even cause damage. You know, we were just, I was just listening to Joe Jordan do a presentation over at the um, convention. And it was so interesting because he played this clip from David Jacobs and it was on the subject of hypnosis. And David Jacobs said, hypnosis is far more reliable. Do not trust your own clear thoughts. He said, hypnosis, the, what the information you can extract through via hypnosis is far more reliable than your own unhindered memory. And my, you know, antenna went up because I was like, that sounds like mind control to tell someone, don't trust your own unencumbered thoughts. Only trust what comes from when, when one of us professionals, you know, hypnotizes you. And that will be the real story. That when you talk, when, when you mention about, um, changing people's personality and their paradigm, their worldview and stuff, that feels so much like mind control to me. And I've never really thought about it in that. I've always kind of thought like the people conducting the hypnosis, the best of intentions. And in probably a lot of cases they do, but that felt super manipulative to me. And is that where like MK Ultra and that kind of thing comes in sort of? Thank you for sharing that. First of all, that that's just disturbing. I mean, that's just outright disturbing that a man with no qualifications in, in the mental health arena would say such a thing, contradicting experts that have decades of clinical trials that form their opinions. So thank you. I think I could share a, an interesting story that, that at least what your, your question reminds me of. Martin Ornay was a mid 20th century hypnosis expert and MK Ultra consultant. And he headed up sub project 84, I believe it was. And he wrote to the CIA recommendations and his his uh, ideas. And one of them was on the idea of interrogations, that you would deceive the hypnosis subjects into thinking you had much stronger techniques than you actually did. And interestingly, one of the ways he suggested this be done was to create what he called a magic room, and it would have props in it. And you could raise the temperature when you tell the hypnosis subject they're going to be experiencing heat and any number of things, just depending on how creative you wanted to get. You could give the subject the hypnotic suggestion that cigarettes would taste bitter and then make sure that the cigarettes they had access to were bitter. And he went as far, this creativity and, and manipulation, as putting false interrogates and detainees among the actual prisoners that then explained to the other prisoners that they'd been through the hypnosis sessions and there was just no chance you couldn't submit. So that's what your question reminds me of. So yes, it, it's concerning. And essentially, Martin Ornay's advanced techniques were convincing the hypnosis subjects he had advanced techniques. Sure. Now, Jacob's... I don't know if this is the right way to put it, features prominently. 
in your book. Um, <laughs> since, since, you know, we've brought up Jacobs here, let's, you know, rabbit trail, not, not really rabbit trail, but let's, let's use him uh, for at least a few minutes as illustrative of the kind of problem that you're trying to address in the book. And again, how some of the things he was doing are very either contradictory or dismissive of what, you know, clinicians would do. Right. You mentioned in your presentation about uh, Sitchin's work, for lack of a better term, that academics just hate to even address this and get bitter about it. And I I think it's uh, that's a great point because to it's my understanding people trained in mental health and hypnosis feel that what Jacobs has done is so far outside of the realm of ethical research and even rational activity that it, it, they they don't even want to address it. They don't want to take it out and unpack it and break yeah, it, it down. It would tarnish them, yeah. Yeah, because then that, that's a rebuttal, and then here you are debating a guy that's not even qualified to be conducting hypnosis. So I, I, I just think of that with the comment you made last night about the academics just hate to even go there. And I'm not an academic, but I can empathize with that. And I think I'm seeing the dynamic. And among Jacobs's activities is in- invoking these convoluted narratives with the hypnosis subject of ET human hybrids are about. And we need to lead you to believe or pretend you believe something so that when they conduct their mind control on you, they will be misinformed about what I'm actually doing here. And in one circumstance, he told, in the Emma Woods case, told her during long-distance international hypnosis that it was his professional diagnosis that she suffered from MPD, and he's not qualified to do so. He's a historian. Mm-hmm. And he explained that might require strong medication. And I've heard this recording. And he goes on and on and on about this and just drills it. And the the idea behind that, well, as he presented it to Emma was I want the hybrids to think that I'm not researching (laughs) alien abduction. I'm researching multiple personality disorder. I'm going to implant this in you so you can fool them. Yeah, That's absolutely correct. Put them off the trail. So I don't really need to understand why he was doing that. I wonder about some motives and some, some thoughts behind it. I don't really need to to challenge his claim that he's an advocate of ethical and scientific research methodology. I can also challenge the claim that such a method is reliable for the conclusion he draws and virtually demands that we agree with. 
And I don't need to know his intent in order to identify that that's strikingly similar to the behavior modification projects and that specific attempts were made and they claim to be successful by men like George Estabrooks that they could induce multiple personalities and selective amnesia. So I don't know why those similarities are there between declassified 1950s documents and what David Jacobs is doing today, but it's difficult not to think that in some way, shape, or form, because of the Hill case or whatever, that the two genres became intertwined, and, you know, it's almost like one of those old crazy episodes of Star Trek where they land on a planet where the people misinterpreted something, and 70 years later, this is the result that here we still are while the abduction people, the investigators, just resist all of the advances in forensics research and the mental health industry and are still doing things that were in the culture 50, 60 years ago. Can you take us through a little bit of the, the history, okay, the Hill case? We'll, we'll start there since that's you know the big famous one. What are... Give us a connection or two that surfaces from the Hill case to, again, some of these experimental, you know, mind control uh, kind of programs. Give us a couple instances. I've always, one of the things that that first made me start considering that was uh, Martin Cannon's work, the controllers considered the Hill case as a, psychological operation um, other researchers have as well and i i was intrigued that it's my understanding their initial description was they were stopped at a roadblock by people and so that's kind of you know an interesting way to start but i i think one of the intriguing aspects of it is the time frame. It was 1961, and we now know that operations such as MK, MK Ultra and MK Naomi were undertaking chemical research projects that, that might have even involved um, airborne hallucinogens. And we know from declassified documents that this involved even special operations teams that were dispatched after conducting field work. And so while there's no smoking gun that this happened, if we're going to progress past the likelihood they were just confused and later under hypnosis, confabulated the circumstances, which is probably most likely, I don't know. But if we're going to explore further explanations, I I think the mind control issue deserves a spot at the table. And um, I, I would think it's infinitely more likely than the more popular alien narrative. And another thing I recently came across is, and it's in a recent post at my blog as well, is a, a now declassified entry in Intellipedia, an intelligence community resource, 
cites some well-known MK Ultra victims, volunteers, whatever we want to call them, that became notable later. And one, for instance, was the man that became known as the Unabomber. And in this Intellipedia entry, it states that he was likely involved in experiments as a volunteer that were considered um, very unethical that took place at Harvard. And that was the 1959 to 1962 time frame. And I just think these connections are interesting of not just the time, but Martin Orne that I mentioned that headed up subproject 84 was in that time frame and he was employed for a time at harvard as was dr simon that worked with the hills was employed at harvard with ties to harvard and the these documents i talk about in the the special access teams they were interested in immigrants and um, dissidents and civil rights activists and people that um, the hills fall into any number of demographics and then by their own accord apparently became hypnosis subjects so it it, it can almost be difficult like it's we can at least say it's not a stretch to say that at some point the hills might have attracted the the interest of of the cia and there's certainly all of these just interesting points one after another that, that we don't have other than with the alien explanation other than that's just what they tended to believe. You know, the, the thing that always struck me about the Hill uh, case was, again, I don't know if it's original testimony. I, I think I probably have read that, but either that or really, I mean, like, okay, what's original? Like the original, you know, transcripts if you can get those or something that was really close to that time but it was the line about how their abductors look like germans you know and i think i read one was they look like nazis yeah yeah i was always struck by that because you know in the in the talk about paperclip what usually gets talked about is the are the rocket guys well there was a whole other wing of, of paperclip that involved you know psychological experimentation and this sort of stuff uh, in in my, I, I I play a little bit on that in my uh, novel, The Portent. There's a scene where, you know, again, without giving too much away for people who haven't read it, but there's a scene where a, a young woman um, is sort of being, um, I, I we'll say, interrogated, and she, the, the narrative of the story makes it evident that the, the people interrogating her, they know her. They, this is not the first time they've all been in the room together and they, you know, the villain takes out a folder and shows her a picture of a man. And as soon as he shows it to her, she just vomits on the floor. Right. And the man happens to be someone connected to the psychological side of paperclip, you know, this mind control experimentation. Well, I didn't make that up. Uh, I've, I've had, you know, I met a, when I was in graduate school, um, I got to meet a psychologist. I'm not going to give the, the location away. Um, but I was co- put into contact with this guy through two other friends. One was, well, actually, we're both pastors, but one had more or less embarked on a counseling career. 
And we were all kind of within a few miles of each other just by happenstance. And so I got a phone call. Hey, why don't you come over here and you can meet this other guy? So I did. And the guy proceeded to tell us, you know, he'd been in practice 30 years and he had over the course of a few years had gotten some of these dissociative identity cases. And he had a recent one where the woman he was trying to work with, trying to help the person who there was a person mailing him things, pictures of things done with this woman to sort of taunt them both. Mm. And that was her reaction to a picture of some guy who's actually dead, mm. but he was a Nazi. Right. He, he would, something was done to her where she would see that image and she just would just puke all over the floor, you know, just like, like right. that. And so those kind of connections again, intrigued me because it doesn't seem a stretch to me that if you thought this work was effective for whatever means, whatever goals that you would do this. And you could manipulate people into thinking, well, here's what happened to you. If you ever remember any of this, this is what we're going to have you remember. And that'll that'll just take you down this path and you'll never think of it going over here. But this is what we're going to have you remember so that you don't remember what's really going on. And, and again, encountering your work, you were tracking on that. Um, so, you know, in relationship to the Hill, there's just that line. I don't know what you think about that. If do you have an opinion about that, that line, I, I think that's a, a reasonable line of thought. I found that intriguing too, because I wondered, uh, speculative as it is, I wondered, um, would that reflect people with accents of some type that, mm. that were in the vicinity or something? Or did, um, did the did the person overhear something said to someone else, maybe in German? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I wondered about that, and I um I maybe even the name Gottlieb, okay, right? Because there you have a, a German name, Barney Hill. Again, was not a dumb guy. I mean, he's an educated person. So it again, it's not that that would have been. A, we're not saying there's a cause and effect relationship there, but but you could hear something like that. And it, it's stored, it's stored information. And, you know, who knows, you know, that that wasn't the case, you know, in, in some of these situations where, you know, if Gottlieb's involved, maybe we should, we should let you talk about Sidney Gottlieb because it's, his name is very well known for anyone who studied MK ultra. But what about, again, his connection between that and some of these abduction cases? Yes, um, Sidney Gottlieb was the project director of MK Ultra, and it was he, along with then director Helms in the 1960s, that they actually went about systematically and intently destroying all the files, and at least the story, and they're sticking to it, of the files that we have were overlooked, or we probably would have never known anything about it, which is a very chilling thought about what didn't get overlooked. I've talked with several people this week that are knowledgeable on the files, and one of the views we share is that when you read enough of it and begin to absorb it, and, and it, you know, after a while, it you, you're starting to pick up on some of the social aspects and nuances 
it's really apparent that they just were trying any and everything. And it was okay if it didn't work. They'd discard it. And th- this this was a group that they, they were attempting to understand the the psilocybin mushrooms that grew in Mexico better. And it's my interpretation from reading those files, not really for the literal drug quality as much as the trance states and how could, how could the other dimensions be weaponized? Did it work? I don't know. They, they don't, you know, if it did, they destroyed it. But that gives us a good look into their their mentalities and and they infiltrated Pentecostal churches to try to learn more about trance states and they were slipping LSD to each other covertly because there was a crazy line of thinking with that and so it, it really becomes apparent they were just fast and loose with everything and Gottlieb was involved with with some different people like George Hunter White, who was recruited from a narcotics bureau, and he had uh, a drinking problem reportedly and was rather colorful, might be a term. And he he's the guy, you may have heard the stories about detonating canisters of chemicals on new york subway and that that was one of the things he was he was charged with doing and so we conclusively know that there were different projects that involved hallucinogens on unsuspecting people in public places and we really just don't know what happened to these people afterwards or how they struggled to explain these experiences or what might have happened. And it's not difficult for me to envision that it it got intermixed somehow with the the UFO genre and, and that kind of thing. Well, you, you even still have that happening, you know, like, you know, like Graham Hancock might be the best example, you know, that. He's just the latest sort of iteration of take XYZ drug because this will put you in tune with consciousness or some other, you know, altered state, you know, however Mm -hmm. that's defined. And then you're going to meet some entities and so on and so forth. These guys are part of that. So, yeah, it's not inconceivable to me that that could happen to people. And even if they're not in the room told, well, these entities you see are actually extraterrestrials. If if you've had that experience and then you hear something 10, 15, 20 years later, like an alien abduction narrative where you see it portrayed in a certain way, it, it's not inconceivable at all to think, oh, well, yeah, okay, now I, now I know what happened to me. Right. Again, because you have this memory, uh, never really wondering too much about what the what the cause was to that effect right and and then especially if a a a community like the alien abduction community welcomes you and embraces you and encourages you to tell the story and then it's further uh underlined and with with hypnosis um further administered almost manufactured 
it takes a lot of courage and stamina for somebody like Emma Woods or Leah Haley to put on the brakes and say, let me think about this a minute. Just hang on. You know what? We really don't have any aliens in this story except what you keep telling me. And like in the case of Emma Woods, it's my interpretation. She continues to think that there may have been some kind of paranormal phenomena in her life, something out of the ordinary. I I believe she's described herself as agnostic about extraterrestrials. And she feels that her venture into uh, interacting with David Jacobs, it's my understanding that she feels um, she doubts his sincerity a great deal. And it was certainly detrimental in her pursuit of the truth and better understanding her life and, you know, virtually everything about the events. Like you're saying, you know, people would struggle to to understand later. And it was certainly hindered by interacting with people that want to impose so strongly their ideas of what had happened upon her. Well, I'm kind of stuck on the Hill case because as you're unfolding all of this, I can, I'm just thinking about what I know about that case. And it seems kind of textbook to what you're saying because you're right. When that case first happened, it did start with them having a weird experience on the highway and it was just men and lights and they went home and just never talked about it. But they're both kind of disturbed by it, but they didn't really talk about it. And it was kind of troubling them. I think Betty thought it was awesome and Barney was disturbed by it. It wasn't until they started going under the hypnosis. I mean, Barney Hill was traumatized. If you listened to those tapes, they're horrifying. I mean, he's screaming in such a way that it's difficult to listen to. So I have no doubt that he thinks something horrifying happened to him because it's blood curdling the, the his tone. Betty, on the other hand, even under hypnosis, still kind of seems like she thought it was awesome. <laughs> I mean, she's just like, it's really cool to her. And I'm thinking like, so ultimately, Barney's life was destroyed by it. He went back to becoming an alcoholic and he died young of a heart attack, whereas she kind of to this day does the convention circuit and that kind of thing. Or I think she's still with us. But did she it would it must have been somewhat recently yeah but she was always still kind of into it and the thing that they rarely talk about is that betty had an interest in ufo's prior to this even happening because i heard one interview with barney where he was that was what made him kind of think that connection because she was always constantly talking about it i don't really know for sure where i'm going i'm just sharing with you my thoughts about why sure, this makes sense sure thanks. because they were civil rights activists they were an interracial couple which was very controversial at the time and if there were interests that wanted to exploit people that were more progressive as far as civil rights gosh the whole thing is making sense i'm kind of mind blown as i'm listening to you well i it, it in the sake of um fairness and and objectivity there's some really good skeptical arguments about the hill case too um so it is a mystery we don't know what happened to them 
And there's no harm in speculating about mysteries. Uh, I just, you know, feel a personal responsibility to, to point that out, that I am speculating. But, yeah, it's interesting. And as Dr. Heiser pointed out, the, the study of the MKUltra documents and the behavior modification projects are a whole specialized area of study con- conducted by academics and professional researchers. And there are some interesting correlations. The special project teams that I was discussing um, one of their interests were in um, setting up um, fake left-wing organizations to attract demographics of interest for possible experimentation with hypnosis. And this, uh, you know, that that's certainly not proof of anything, but it, it does indicate that the Hills were several demographics that the MK Ultra and Artichoke documents specifically stayed an interest in and then went themselves to start getting hypnotized and um that that was after uh, a couple of years and an odd series of events in itself and there's a lot of questions to be asked and yeah it is still a mystery and Giving giving everything, you know, equal weight, I, I'd probably say they most likely were confused over the couple years. They talked some, had similar stories by the time they got hypnotized, but that doesn't account for all aspects of the story. And I'm not sure really that any of the theories conclusively do, which I guess is why <laughs> it's still a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because the Hills, you know, if you think about the most famous case of abduction, and it really kind of was what springboarded this, the whole abduction phenomenon. If you always kind of go back to that as kind of the, the precursor to everything else that we hear now, it makes me wonder what's the point? Like if this, like, let's say this is mind control. This is, you know, intentional manipulation of people to think that they're having these experiences. What's the end game? What are they trying to do? Because it worked. If, if Betty and Barney Hill were that it worked to put this into the public mindset and to make people more receptive to the idea that this could happen to them, what 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 is what is the what are they trying to achieve with this that that's a great question i would speculate it wasn't the end game if some people did come to think that they were alien abductees as the result of interacting and being identified as targets of some of these projects i think that at least in some cases, maybe that wasn't the intent, but just the the perception that was drawn. Like how I mentioned that the Unabomber was a former MKUltra uh, volunteer. I don't think they intended to create the Unabomber. And uh, uh, there's famous gangster that was uh, and, and some others that... Um, 
I don't think it was the end game. And I think we can look at some UFO situations as somewhat of a, a comparison, like the ghost rocket phenomenon. I, I feel pretty confident at this point involved different deception activities and intimidation activities by the global military community. I certainly think that that's the explanation to beat. I mean, it, it would require someone to give us conclusive evidence otherwise. And so I don't think that it was the, the 1946-47 military com community intending to mislead people about UFOs. I think that some writers did that and some opportunists and some sincere yet misinformed people. And then we pretty much have the UFO community in a nutshell there. Yeah. And, and you know, if, if the people who are either the ones who perhaps contributed in some way experimentally, and then, and then this is the result they get, or if you're an onlooker, you know, you're someone in the intelligence community or the military and you, you know, you you have a whiff of, you know, what the cause might have been or, or you have some direct knowledge. You, you look at the effect and you think, wow, there's something that worked there and it produced right. this result, even though we didn't expect that result. But now that we know that this is a possible result, how can we make that useful? In other words, how can we either use that incident or how can we again, use what went into producing that result in a different way. In other words, they learn things. And, you know, they, I think we'd have to admit, well, okay, that, that's sort of scientific because that's kind of how science is done. You, know, you do things and you look at the results and some of the leaps, of course, are, are accidents, you know, completely unintended consequences and there you go. So that, that's, that's how I kind of look at this sort of thing. I would agree that you don't have a room full of people and, you know, with lots of brass on them and saying, well, our next project is to make people believe that they're aliens. I mean, I think that's really simplistic. But again, you have an incident and you don't have the people in the know come forth with a coherent explanation, either because, well, we just want to see what happens or because we just want to keep our mouths shut, you know, because we don't want people to know for, for you know, maybe good reasons. And then it that it becomes it becomes its own thing it becomes its own story and then you're right you know you have either science fiction writers or somebody else and as it grows then again you can have the the guys in the room with the brass look at that and say boy that's interesting you know look, look at what happens to lots of people and the way they think look look how they can be trained to embrace an idea mm -hmm. might that be useful in some other way and and so it, it kind of like goes back and forth and becomes something for altogether different reasons rather than some like, you know, laid out plan. It, it just sort of happens and it gets massaged in, in different directions. I, I think that's completely reasonable to consider and that they come back to it at different times and in different applicable situations. And uh, like, that's what I meant with how fast and loose they were and just running everything up the flagpole and just yeah. make note and come back later, expand on this, expand on that. And more along those lines, at the very time these behavior mod mo 
modification projects were really kicking into gear. They they began late 40s, Bluebird, Artichoke, and by 1953, we had MK Ultra, and it it ran to 1964. Well, in 1953 was when the Robertson panel first met, and we now know that that was a CIA-sponsored panel and uh, was funded by the CIA and explored the possibility of the use of UFOs as a psychological weapon. And then the very next year, the topic was considered for use as a distraction by the CIA and an operation it was conducting in Guatemala. They There's a now declassified cable that uh, suggest to operatives, among other options, they might consider fabricating a story about UFOs to take public attention away from what the CIA was doing in the area. So I think it's relevant that it's the same agency at the time of the behavior modifications and twisting the the key on the UFO topic and that, as you're saying, that 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 could have come across, they could have stumbled upon accidentally or just let's see how well it works, um, leads to the National Enquirer or tabloids and interests in those things and right and run with it as long as it works and then yeah, jump and ship it, when it doesn't. And, and if it does work, let's say you have an, some situation that it works really well. Well, you're going to look at that. What were the parameters that made that outcome mm-hmm. what it was? And boy, you know, we can store that away and maybe use that again. I mean, why wouldn't you want to use it again mm-hmm. if you knew it was effective in some way? You know, and mm-hmm. again, I, I don't think this, this trial on error, to me, the whole process makes sense. Again, you, you, we don't have any direct knowledge that, oh, there's this in today in UFO history was actually caused by this thing over here, you know, in, in psychological warfare. But you, you, you look at it and it it's conceivable that you know, this kind of thing needs to be part of the discussion. You know, like, like Nick was saying today uh, earlier in a talk, Nick Redfern, um, just laying out all sorts of, we'll just say, man-made, man-caused, man-derived, uh, items, you know, evidence pieces, and again, timeline consistencies and historical intersections with the Roswell case that can account for basically every element of the story. Uh, like you were saying, well, there, the debris field from Roswell, well, two times earlier, debris had been recovered from that same field. Right. Well, okay, that, that doesn't that doesn't answer the question necessarily that the Roswell <laughs> case was the third one, but I mean, good grief. It happened two times before. Doesn't that matter? Yeah. You know, why, why wouldn't that be a consideration when you're thinking about this particular event? It, it's not, it, it wasn't the first time. So that, that ought to be part of the, of the way it's talked about, or at least the way it's thought about. Sure. And so I kind of look at this the same way that you, you don't have, you know, like you said, the smoking gun, but you have things that, to me anyway, just seem to be relevant. You know, why aren't they part of the picture? Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Um, people were drugged without their knowledge. They were lured into situations and drugged and observed. And 
uh, sometimes much worse, much worse uh, experiments on wiping the memory and reprogramming the, a person's very perception of who they are and what they are. An argument can be made that it would be difficult to not envision fringe ideas coming out of such research. And so I, I agree, it's not a smoking gun, but it, it certainly deserves a, a spot on the list of possible explanations for some of the odder reports or coincidences involving certain personnel and locations and time frames. I'm going to give you uh, another name here. Um, and, and just throw out, I don't know if you've read Annie Jacobson's book yet, the newest one, Phenomena. I have not read that one. Yeah, it, it, it's really worth your time because part parts of the book intersect with this conversation. You know, the, the drug experimentation, the you know, again, the mind, you know, control techniques and that sort of thing. But here's a name that shows up in her book that shows up in UFO stuff and, and your blog and in relation to what we're talking to, but uh, Bert Stubblebein. Tell us about him. How would he be a factor here? Um, Major General Albert Stubblebein was credited with creating remote viewing. He was credited with redesigning the entire intelligence structure of the U.S. Army at one point. And that, that earned him a spot in the Military Intelligence Hall of Fame. He was featured prominently in um, John Ronson's Men Who Stare at Goats. And I interviewed uh, Lynn Buchanan, who was involved in some of that as well, the remote viewing group and their fringe ideas. And Lynn Buchanan believes himself to be an alien abductee and was uh, on Stubblebine's remote viewing team. And Colonel John Alexander was an sure. employee of Stubblebine, and um, Stubblebine married Dr. Rima LeBeau, who was an advocate for alien abductees and um, an advocate of the use of hypnosis with them. Yeah, and, and both he and his wife, again, are, are part of Jacobson's book uh, because, again, the effect of the drugs with this whole thing about penetrating consciousness uh, because that has a direct relationship to what at least it's believed remote viewers might be doing. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, what, what the mechanism is, in other words, how, how it's done. So again, there you go. You, you've got, you've got uh, what can we do to produce altered states so that we know how remote viewing works. And Oh, by the way, altered states are part of the discussion about, alien abductions. And then you have, again, a few people at the, at the center where what they're doing touches all these areas. And again, to me, that, that just seems really odd because they're, you have Stubblebine, you have Alexander. These people, as you detail on your blog, are connected with certain research professionals in, in the area of psychology or psychiatry. And oh, they just happen to be graduate students of this person who was part of the MK Ultra research mm -hmm. team. I mean, it, it's just things like that, that to me, okay, if it's one thread, all right, that's a coincidence. When it's three, four, five, ten, it, it, there, there's just something going on there. Yeah, 
that one one of the things I took issue with was when some of these people the the in career intelligence officers they claim themselves willing and able qualified to tell the UFO community the inside scoop on UFOs and what what the government knows and what they don't and then they only want to talk about it on their own terms they don't want to take questions they don't want to be interviewed and I, I can appreciate there's security clearances, there's uh, uh, various problems, but again and again, we see them accuse us of mongering conspiracies. And they bring them up in the first place while claiming to be qualified to tell us what's going on and then don't want to field our follow-up questions. And I could just give example after example uh, about um, Bert Stubblebine and Rima LeBeau and their um, outrageous conspiracies they write about on, on their or wrote about on their website, um, Natural Solutions Foundation, up to and including Dr. LeBeau claiming that she thought attempts had been made on her life due to outing all these conspiracies. Um, Colonel Alexander, in a 2007 interview with Sharon Weinberger, um, explained how mind control was coming back, that there was an interest in it among younger lawmakers that weren't around for the MK Ultra abuses, and it might have a use in the war on terror so that detainees such as at Guantanamo Bay could be released and not come back and kill him, that they might could be, the term he used was electronically neutered. And I could just go on and on about things they've said about aliens and E.T. And, and then if you write about those statements, you're accused of being a conspiracy monger. And so I, there's times I haven't appreciated their elusiveness and throwing things out that they clearly want written about and they want put out into the community, but then don't want to be held accountable or actually put the file on the table that makes it anything more than a speculative statement. Mm -hmm. Well, I have one last question. And if, if uh, Natalina or uh, Trey, if you have a question you know, to wrap up, but I don't know if you've met anybody here yet, but invariably at one of these conferences, and I've, I've had one of these conversations already, people will just come up to you and they will tell you their story. Right. And their story involves a lot of this stuff. So in your opinion, how should we how should we process that? Should we assume okay this person is telling me the truth? Should we assume this person's sort of messed up? They've been either programmed or they've seen or read or heard too many other stories that now that has explanatory power for their own story. I mean how do you, how do you, you know, that, that is respond? a great question, doctor, because there's some personal responsibility in it too. And I asked some others in the community 
about responsibly covering the fringe a few years ago. I did a blog post about it. Nigel Watson and Mark Pilkington and Sharon Weinberger, and they were helpful in telling me um, how to try to describe things without getting overly involved with people you might interact with or or interview and the community i've talked to people this week already too is understandably distrustful i mean there's story after story about writer that's been fed bad information to be made a fool out of and um, the community infiltrated by various people with nefarious intentions and ill intentions. And then you have people that you're just concerned about. Are they traumatized and how can I best help this person? And I really don't, I don't have the answers to that. I try to be kind to people. I try to point them in the right direction if I think I can of where they might can find the right kind of help. And I think that proper mental health treatment, someone to talk to, treatment for trauma is always a healthy option for a traumatized individual. And that's regardless of what you don't have to decide if it was an alien or a mind control operation or uh, something that something else that may be horrific but not extraterrestrial treatment for trauma. I, I'm an advocate of that, but generally, I just want to listen to people, be kind to them, and keep ourselves safe while. Of course, trying not to harm others. How would would you comment on that? I'd like to yeah. hear how how you two Again, deal I've with had, it as I've well. Had a couple, I've actually had two this week, and the one person I would sort of, I just got the feeling that this person probably had a long drug history, and so they would have had uh, experiences like that, sort of induced that they've kind of translated into supernatural encounters or, you know, at one part of the conversation, it was supernatural encounters. And that drifted to, I had, you know, I was present at, at the Kennedy assassination, you know, astrally projecting. And then it went to, you know, something altogether about uh, past lives and, and things like that. So to me, when you concatenate all those things, you know, this doesn't sound like a person with a, with a story that really corresponds to, to reality, like either something was done to them or, or they did something to themselves. And this is sort of an after effect that now they encounter other narratives and that, that parses it for them. And then that, that becomes kind of what they, what they tell themselves and what they tell others. But the second one I had, there was just something about this person that, and maybe it's because I've encountered other people that have some story that just sounds more sensible, even if you can even use a word like sensible with the, the stuff we're talking about, but someone that again claimed to have an attachment to you know a mind control program through you know not like I mean it wasn't the right age to have the chronology be some sort of first generation you know person, but really could speak very fluidly about this. 
I was at this place. I was under the care of this person. I have documentation for this, but not that. And, you know, this person trained under this other person. And I'm trying to, you know, find out, you know, where I was, what happened to me, what the options are. And it sounded a lot like like a few of the people in Jacobson's book that as a result of this have either had, you know, what I guess what she would call psychic experiences or some perceived ability or intuition or something like that. But it was just, it was the manner of the delivery that just t- told me that there's probably something here. If we drill down into these three or four things, we're probably going to get two or three hits. And then we're going to get one that's just, no, nah, it's not really what you thought it was. You know, it's that kind of thing as opposed to the other. And, and in both cases, it's like, I'm trying to direct the first person to try to think about, you know, really where they're at spiritually, since that's kind of where they wanted to, what they wanted to talk about. So, you know, and, and they brought a lot of biblical language into it. So that was, that was the way I thought I could best talk with that person um, about, you know, who they are, their eternal destiny, you know, uh, you know, telling them really the story about the cross and things like that to try to just give them some direction. And the second person, it's like, well, don't get too fixated on what was done to you. It'll be a distraction. Try your best to be to document things because if you can, you're going to be really valuable. You'll be unique. You know, somebody who actually can lay their hands on some documentation, and then you know, try to how can you take this experience and help somebody else down the line with it? Because you're going to run into other people like you, and they and they already had. So it was a little bit of direction advice, you know, that, that kind of thing. Don't, don't get lost over here. Try to focus over here and, and don't worry about what you can't control. Worry about what you can and try to, try to make it useful. Try to make your, your, your time useful uh, to yourself and somebody else. So, you know, that was just my sense of how to talk to both of them. Sure. But that, that's more or less where we went with it. I hope this doesn't derail the whole thing. So I, <laughs> but it, it's best to do it right at the end if it does. Um, <laughs> so it, this has been really cool for me because normally I have an opportunity to kind of familiarize myself with what we're going to be discussing before we do. And in this case, I haven't, I didn't get a chance to hear you speak yet. And I haven't been able to familiarize myself with your work yet, which I will definitely be doing, but it's been so interesting to me because I'm like thinking about it as you know, it's all I'm learning new things as you're talking about it. But one thing that I just have to ask, you mentioned, you know, your initial interest with folks like David Jacobs, and, and then you kind of got into this type of research. Where do you discuss where you come down on the issue of UFOs, extraterrestrials, their the nature, whether they're real or not. Do you discuss much of that? Because you know, like people that you mentioned, like John Keel and Valet, they do have sort of non traditional approaches to what the classic ET might be. Do you speculate about it at all? Sure, that's actually a great way. I think to wrap things up and brings me to another point. Thank you. My short answer to that would be that. Um, I, I think Valet was, I would speculate Valet was on the right track, that um, he wrote something once to the effect that if he were to find out it was as simple as a traveling space 
being he would be extremely disappointed <laughs> because that really doesn't cover all of the reports. Not, but I mean, they're a really weird space being if that's what it is. So I don't, I don't dismiss, dismiss things out of hand. I have respect and friendship with people that have a wide variety of viewpoints. And my general um, default setting is just to require evidence available for public review in order to uh, form a conclusion. And pretty much everything else, you just have to suspend judgment. But what your question reminded me of, and I'd like to add, so thanks for asking it, is... um, yeah, I was real interested in Hopkins and Jacobs, and uh, I was just like, wow, you know? And so I would like to express to people that read my work and my blog and uh, attend my opportunities to make presentations, I'd like them to understand that I I was very fascinated by all of it. And so I wanted to ask more questions. And then when I asked those questions, the things I found out were very unflattering about some of these writers and some of their witnesses. And that left me with some choices to make as to what, and, and a lot of people just walk away. When, when they get disillusioned, they just walk away from it. Other people deal with it in different ways. Some keep their mouth shut and just put their head down and do their own thing and try to stay out of the drama of the different arguments. I waited out and decided to start writing the blog and eventually the book because I thought I had some reasonable things to contribute. And I wanted people that had the questions I did to not have to go through all the same process again. And um, in a manner of speaking, almost felt like uh, almost a matter of responsibility that, that if, if I understand what's happened in like the, the interactions between Carol Rainey and Bud Hopkins and, and the flawed aspects of his work, then I feel like I have some responsibility to point those out. And that doesn't mean that he's a bad guy or he was very charismatic and likable and a friendly guy, but it does mean that his research methodologies did not support the conclusions like we were saying about David Jacobs. And so I would like people to understand that once I took this dive, the more I kept looking at it, it seemed like the worse it was getting instead of that's just an anomaly and let's go on to another researcher. There were a lot of bad, bad things in the alien abduction genre. And all in all, no, it doesn't support the narrative at all. And there may very well be events of interest that may have any number of explanations. I'm sure there's a lot of explanations for all the different reports, ranging from mundane to possibly extraordinary. 
but we just need to make sure that we require adequate answers to make our minds up. But thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the interview. Thank you. Well, Jack, before we let you go, can you tell us what your blog is and what your book is and where people get more information about you? I can. Thank you. I write the blog, The UFO Trail, and it is ufotrail.blogspot.com. It's a Google blog, The UFO Trail. And my book is The Grays Have Been Framed, Exploitation in the UFO Community. And it's linked on the blog is and is available on Amazon. I recently was a contributor as well to the new book, UFOs Reframing the Debate, edited by Robbie Graham and his colleagues. So folks might want to check out some of that stuff. Yeah, and it, that, all that stuff is excellent material. I've read Jack's first book, highly recommend it. And I'm into the other one, the one you just mentioned about being a contributor. That you know, Good start so far. Looks like really good stuff. And uh, I'm guessing I'll be recommending that too. So Thanks, everybody, for being here. And, Jack, thanks for your time. Thank you.